Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Peter Sureff. Peter has worked with data his whole career, since graduating in computer science at Cardiff University, where he was also an advisor to Cardiff University for their Data Innovation Accelerator. As the Data Science Director at Centrica, he worked on some of the biggest problems in energy today, very topical with today's news, And while at Centrica, he launched their first blockchain project, set up the first group-wide data science team, built their digital accelerator hub, and set up the first knowledge transfer partnership around data innovation. This year, he left Centrica, and he set up a data science startup, Empiricis, where he's the CTO and the co-founder. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Good to have you with us, too. We first met um, a few months ago, despite both living in South Wales, actually, and it was encouraging to find out, even from our first meeting, how many common interests we had. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I I start off with every guest asking them to give listeners their backstory, if you like, their career story, so we all understand where you're coming from. So let's, in time-honoured fashion, stick with that, Peter. Could you tell us a bit about your background and how you got into leading a data science team? Yeah, of course. Um, So my background, I graduated with computer science in Cardiff University back Mm. in 2002. And while I was at university, I got a summer job, as lots of students do, to keep me in beer money and uh, and fed. Uh, at British Gas, where I was uh, doing fairly menial kind of processing paper contracts into a, a into a CRM system, hmm. um, and it was a summer job. However, some uh, very kind folk noticed that I was doing a computer science degree there and offered me a role uh, to come and help them build applications, build build small business applications them mm-hmm. in the Cardiff call centre. One thing led to another, and on graduating, I was offered a, a sort of full role as a, an application developer. So I sort of fell into my career kind of by accident. I, I knew that I wanted to be involved in software engineering, software development to some degree, mm. um, but I, I hadn't really planned out, I guess, as most uh, sort of 21-year-olds do. <laughs> I took, took the path of least resistance and, yeah, and ended sure. up somewhere that um, worked out really well for me. Mm. So at... British Gas, I had tons of opportunities to uh, to develop and grow. And I moved quite quickly, actually, into an area that I've been stuck with mm-hmm. from my early days of building, uh, you know, front-end web applications 
Mm -hmm. I moved into data. So I moved into um, building kind of data pipelines, mm -hmm. uh, loading up data warehouses, managing the data warehouses, mm -hmm. providing data for end users to go build reports on. And that sort of grew over the next five to 10 years to the point where I was then kind of leading data teams, uh, managing the enterprise data warehouse for mm -hmm. Centrica and getting involved at a, at a kind of much broader, wider level. Hmm. Uh, at Centrica and obviously Centrica you know owners of British Gas but also uh, have have a lot of other interests you know upstream as well and then uh, companies like Local Heroes or Hive uh, hmm. or uh, you know a while ago VAA there hmm. were there were quite a few different aspects uh, to the role lots of different areas to to kind of stay interested in so it's never boring there were always lots of uh, kind of new areas to explore and new things to learn hmm. Hmm. so uh I I kind of reached a point in my career where I, I was um, looking for the the next sort of challenge, um, and I was hoping I could do that at Centrica, particularly um, as as I mentioned, because there are all these sort of different different areas. The group is quite broad. Sure. Um, and one of the things that that came up was this this new thing at the time called big data. <laughs> and um, this this would have been around 2009, 2010, mm. when big data was uh, not really well known. It was still a, a sort of buzz with you here at conferences, but nothing <laughs> really understood. And I think the Gartner hype cycle you know, is right at the top of that slope. Yeah, sure. And hadn't hadn't uh, started its plummet down into <laughs> the, the trough of trough of disillusion or whatever it's called. Mm. Um, uh, but that was that was massively interesting to me. And at, at about the same time, uh, as luck would have it, in the UK, there was a mandate for smart metering to, uh, you know, to happen very quickly. Uh, you know, there's there's a big rollout government mandates that all houses need to have smart meters within the next five to six years. Um, and what that meant for British Gas for, for Centrica is that there would be a huge explosive growth in the amount of data they'd need to track, understand, and, and report on. So moving from meter reading, you get maybe four times a year, to getting a reading every 15 minutes potentially mm -hmm. um you know that that was a, a massive amount of, of additional data that that our traditional data warehousing didn't really know how to cope with and we, we didn't really know how to cope with so as mm -hmm. luck would have it you know that happened at the same time the big data uh, revolution was happening and it was a sort of natural switch for me to move into big data where i started uh, getting involved in in kind of big data architecture and running mm -hmm. um hadoop teams to figure out how we do some of this stuff mm -hmm. Um, my career then kind of took, I guess, a, uh, a sort of more managerial path where I moved from being quite hands-on and, and actually building um, some of this stuff to either becoming a, an architect, solution architect, solution design, and then running uh, some of these teams and becoming a little bit more hands-off to the point where I was then, I think 2016, uh, I built the, the first data science team because you know we collected all this data and now we need to know how to do something with it. So we needed a data science team. Um, and, and yeah, I was, I was uh, very kindly suggested by my, my boss at the time, uh, Daljit Rehal, who put me in in charge of how you know fig, figure this out, Pete? Let's build a data science team. Um, here's here's some some grads and some contacts. <laughs> go and go and make this happen. Great. Uh, which which was great. It was it was yeah really wonderful kind of opportunity to begin doing that. And one of the absolute highlights of my career. But yeah, we built the first data science team 
uh, global kind of group data science team in Centrica that had a very wide remit. Uh, we could explore all these different data science use cases and try to understand uh, things by the business have never been really dug into before and start to maybe change the business a little bit to become more data oriented and, and be a bit more fixated by, by the numbers than we were previously. Um, which I guess kind of leads up to the present day. I was doing that for a few years. Um, and then my, my latest jaunt has been leaving Centrica uh, over the last, last year to form my own startup, my own data mm. science startup called Empiricis, where I'm now the the CTO and co-founder, mm -hmm. uh, and Empiricis is really focused on, on one main aspect in terms of data science, and that's around process safety. And we try to understand, can we, can we understand things about process safety in large high hazard organizations that are mm -hmm. usually under the surface and very difficult to dig up and uncover. Mm -hmm. and, and we've, we've been going for about a year, uh, been massively exciting, but incredibly different in environment to working at a big company, yeah. working yeah. at a big organization. You, know, you have to make all those decisions yourself. The safety yeah. net isn't there anymore. Uh, yeah. As you as you well know, you know, it's um, a whole different ball game. But uh yeah, br brilliant and exciting and, and wonderful and and yeah, again, one of the best things I've done in my career. I think that brings us more or less up to date. Yeah, sounds sounds like it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now I um empathize with a lot of what you're saying and great to hear that story thanks for sharing that with us i i guess having similarly experienced that i spent most of my career within lloyd's banking group and had the chance to you know, reinvent myself and and fulfill different roles in uh, in in the underwriting side and the marketing side and the data and analytics side as well as my original it career i i, I relate to that kind of part of your career and, and i know for me it's been um um, in some ways, a massive learning curve, and in other ways, a great opportunity to draw on what I hadn't realized I'd learned already, you know, and all these kind of resources and corporate life, mm. doing this move to running my own business, um, mm. been going a little longer than you now, sort of seven, seven and a half years now. I, I wondered for you, Pete, it, it's relatively early days still, but what are you experiencing so far are the kind of the best bits and the biggest challenges, I guess, of going out on your own and after so many years in corporate life, having made this bold move to, uh, to found and to, to run your own business? Well, weirdly, I think the best bit and the worst bit are probably uh, different sides of the same coin. Okay. So the best bit is if I want to build something, then I can build it immediately. I can get my credit card mm. out, pay for an AWS account, yeah. uh, put my own branding on there, uh, you know, worry about the, the the specifics later and have something out ready to launch on the same day, pretty much. And I can mm. test that with mm. a client immediately. Mm. So that's great. The speed at which we can operate, the freedom at which we can operate is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. However, big organizations have legal teams and brand teams <laughs> and, um, and marketing teams for a reason. Yeah. And that's to yes. protect you. And that kind of overhead cover being being missing to some degree is probably uh it gives you a kind of feeling of discomfort i think mm -hmm. because you're you're sort of second guessing yourself quite a lot um or perhaps this is a function of me having worked in a large organization where there has been you know air cover for a long time that i'm now uh you know I'll, I'll publish something put something out into the world and then think later on 
uh, should I check with legal about that, or should I check with our, you know, brand standards around that? Have I have I yeah. done this? Have I done this correctly? Am I am I putting myself at any any risk, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a sort of a sort of weird feeling to have, mm-hmm. and I think probably quite natural for for lots mm-hmm. of lots of people like me that have moved from corporate world to startup. You know, it's it's sort of shouldn't there be a grown up around to make sure that I'm doing this correctly? <laughs> <laughs> which um which is I've, I've started to lose that now and started to just yeah. you know ca- carry on and push through but that was a bit of a strange one right at the beginning you know in the first couple of months mm. uh you know am I allowed to do this it's, it's yeah. such a yeah. such a weird bit of cognitive dissonance yes 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 no relate relate to that uh, and I think m- most people who've come from corporate life to running their own business will, will know that transition it is it is a funny kind of like you say two sides of the one coin both mm-hmm. delighting in the freedom and then suddenly realizing what you took for granted in a big business mm. you know, was 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 always there, available as air cover. It's quite a nice quite a nice term for it. When we chatted before, Pete, I know you also mentioned that you've you've done so many things within your career, but um, some of the CRM migration project work and mm. and other other pieces you led, I imagine probably in in the big data space as well, that also required you to navigate organizational politics, as will be. Um, all too familiar to, to many data and analytics leaders within corporate life. I wonder whether almost now you're outside corporate life to some extent, and you can kind of look back and think what you've learned. What what do you think you learned about navigating organisational politics when you mm. were there in corporate life? And, and is that still relevant for you? Sure. Well, I'll give one very practical tip. If you're ever doing a CRM migration, you never have <laughs> two versions of the same report. Have one version or three versions, because two will be out, and there will be questions that you are unable to answer. Like almost mm. certainly, mm. I think there's uh, maybe Ralph Kimball uh, mentioned. You know, don't have two clocks. Only yeah. have you know one clock or three clocks, because uh, otherwise you're you're setting yourself up for for failure. So that was something very very practical. If you are going to do a migration, or you've got you know, we're moving from one one application to another, and you've got data coming out from both. Um, syncing up is just a, is is a nightmare. So that's mm. a practical mm. one. It doesn't really cover your your question, but I thought I, I have to mention that okay. as a professional okay. that's involved in it. And a, bonus a content, <laughs> bonus content. Yeah, exactly. Um, the the sort of getting to the nub of the question around the the organisational politics. I I guess there are. It's sort of horses for courses. It depends on the context. And in mm. terms of the CRM migrations, I've been involved in two. Um, they they had a very different sort of context to the sort of day to day, you know, living in the corporate world. Uh, mm. You know, they were very they were they kind of they were a project. So the, the team was together were there for a long time, but it was a, a temporary project, mm. and mm. there was an incredible amount of focus on delivery. Mm. Um, above and beyond the kind of normal normal day job, sure. Uh, and and uh, you know, as I mentioned, that you know, there, there's always this issue about these things aren't syncing up. You know, there's there was always a problem, yeah. and there's always something to fix. Yeah, um, it was yeah. not business as usual. So the things, looking back on it, that I think we we probably I would have done a lot more is maybe ramp up the formality of the project actually my nature is to be relatively informal with, with mm. people i'm working mm. with um but actually in this kind of context having formal structures in place particularly project structures and, and managing it mm. as a as a formal ongoing project and keeping that, that formality in place probably would have helped an awful lot because it protects both parties you know if, if you if you both uh, if you both have full awareness of 
uh, of the plan at all times of the assumptions that be made of the, mm. the risks and issues mm. in the project and so on and all the project deliverables that's great um, for a project like that and I wouldn't necessarily say the same thing for your your day-to-day -day work you know the, mm. if it's if mm. you're if you're delivering sort of um, uh, just kind of regular operational changes then having a kind of Kanban board works works well but for a for a big delivery project like that with so many eyes on it then formality is a mess and it just it protects both parties um and the the other element which i guess is more of a, a sort of people culture sort of thing is, mm. is honesty just complete complete yeah. brutal honesty yeah. Yeah. and ex explaining uh in detail if needed where things have gone wrong or, or how things have worked out mm. so mm. um I, I guess it's in the nature of lots of technical people to give a, a kind of a manager's view, if you like, of, of, you know, this is what's happened. You don't need to know the details mm -hmm. because we'll take care of that. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. for, for some projects, that's fine. You know, if it's a proof of concept and you're on the cutting edge of technology, mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about a migration that impacts the entire future of the business, then we need to do better as, as technology people. Yeah. We need to explain exactly what we're doing and, and be honest about it and honest about where the, the pitfalls are. So I think, yeah, uh, honesty is always a good policy in, you yes. know, when working with stakeholders, but especially so on, on kind of critical projects. Yes, yes, yes. Thank, thank you, Peter. That, that, that makes good sense. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you emphasize that. I know I spent um, years on Never Get Back um, <laughs> build it, building a data warehouse um, back, back in the day when these things were popular. I did actually get used, so it ranks among one of the few successful data warehouse <laughs> projects. <laughs> Um, but I, I'm always amazed when I reflect back on that, how many of the lessons learned and the things that I do differently or encourage others to do are, are people in leadership um, related mm. topics. And, and the focus on domain knowledge, particularly in things like the data mapping, which takes a, an exorbitant amount of, of such a project. Mm. It's, there's always a tendency in the media, I find, to, to focus on the technical, to focus on the technical prowess of skills. But so many of these people things make a huge difference to the success of these projects. Yeah, and, yeah. Interesting to hear you talk about that greater formality. You don't hear the call for that so much, but I, I, I agree with you. The other thing I was struck by listening to your career story uh, afresh, Peter, was um, the move, as I typify it, I guess, or at least it sounded it, from, from sort of data, almost data engineering, data ops type, type roles, straight into data science, mm. whereas... A lot of the leaders I hear, I suppose, have gone through the kind of transition through analytics roles, as I've described them. I mean, there might have been some data management, data engineering or, or software engineering kind of background, but there's a, often a period of time doing more traditional analytics before then a, a, an upgrading, if you see it as such, to, to the embracing of, of data science and some of the, the possibilities of machine learning, et cetera. You clearly didn't spend so long, at least, in, in an analytics role and it had come much more rapidly from data um, pipelines, as you described them building, into a data science focus and the challenge you were given. Do you see that as having been a good thing? And um, did you have to teach yourself completely? Mm, yeah, no, sure. Um, I, yeah, good question. And it's something that I'm sort of aware of as a bit of an anomaly in my career that I've, I've I have kind of leapfrogged, uh, mm. you know, doing hands-on analytics uh, in corporate in the corporate world. Mm. I I did teach myself to some degree. When I say that, I I 
did a couple of courses at the OU. They've got a really great uh, kind of practical modern statistics course that right. gives you all, all the kind of the, the kind of main concepts underpinning lots of the, the techniques that we use. And I started uh, a PhD for a, a part time PhD, which I, I did for a few years, which was focused on um, understanding uh, kind of organizational dynamics using machine learning oh, and, and supervised models in particular. Mm. So mm. I, I did get uh, hands on experience, you know, writing, writing machine learning models, doing analytics. Um, and building stuff, but not in a not in a corporate setting. I guess I didn't do it for cash. I was never paid to do yeah. analytics, um, but I learned enough of the concepts that mm. I think that plus my background in understanding data architecture to, to quite a good degree, um, mm. and you know having a, a, a you know very intimate knowledge of, of SQL, of data pipelines, mm. data engineering, mm. put me in a good place where I was a pretty good generalist and I could understand. Um, pr pretty much the, the kind of end-to-end -end flow of this stuff. Okay. Whereas I think um, you know some some analysts I've worked with, or some data scientists, or some data engineers are brilliant at their piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. but then maybe struggle to fit that into an overall uh, an overall architecture and a yeah. business architecture. You know, where does this fit with the business? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's probably the, the the thing that I was able to bring the most. You know, how how does this stuff fit together in terms of it adding value to the business somewhere? Mm. Mm. Um, which which obviously there, there's there is a, a sort of trade off. Um, it would it it would be great, and it's still something I'd like to do, particularly with Imperative, to get more hands on actually building. Um, you know, commercial machine learning applications. Yeah. Uh, but we've got there's so many great people that can already do that mm. that we mm. can we can kind of you know hire and, and make make that work uh, yes. in a way that they don't need to focus on all the other kind of more difficult questions around around you know does the customer want this or, or you know does this pay off in the end or mm. um, how do we how do we go on supporting this you know what's the commercial value and some of those bits I, I think I was finding more useful because we didn't have anybody to answer those questions at Centrica mm -hmm. and we don't really mm -hmm. you know we, we don't have a, a big team in Pyrrhus so those are the sorts of questions I'm more focused on and I'm letting the data scientists uh focus on the specifics of the models they're building yeah that that, that makes good sense it, it reminded me actually back cool must be oh, a few years ago now actually I suppose I had a blog post I published on Customer Insight Leader blog by a previous guest on this podcast, Andy Sutton, who um, heads up data and personalization down in Endeavour Drinks in, in Sydney, in, in Australia. And uh, he was making the case that um, non-data scientists can very effectively lead data science teams, which is a bit of a controversial view these mm -hmm. days, you know, and how much a focus on being able to provide that translator role, being able to focus on the people development and increasing the domain knowledge and the appropriate use of those data scientists mm. can be just as valuable to the data scientists themselves as a leader who can act as the technical mentor, if you like, or, or supervise them in, in their craft. I wonder whether that's something you've seen as you as you led the teams who are doing more of the hands-on data science work in, in Centrico in your new business. Well, I, I think that's a truism throughout technical roles. You know, mm. the, the, the best technical person is not necessarily the best technical leader or the best yeah. leader of a technical team, rather, yeah. um, because there are two completely different skill sets at play. Mm. And in my experience, at least, I found that the really good technical people I've worked with are not generally that keen to take on managerial roles. They prefer yeah. to stay hands on 
and write code. And it's a it's sort of natural progression, I think, as you move through your career. But if you start in a technical role, you end up being less technical by the end of your career. And maybe I'm some way, some way mid through my career and I'm still slightly hands-on at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I tend to agree with that. I think I think that there absolutely needs to be a base level of knowledge around mm-hmm. what you're doing, and you need mm-hmm. to have done some level of practicing in in that field. You know, some level of understanding about what mm-hmm. what that field actually mm-hmm. includes. Um, but I, I I tend to agree with with the point from the previous guest that that actually there there's a, a real benefit to having somebody that can understand well enough, but then translate that to the wider world and, and to give it more context and to say, mm. well, where is this useful? Um, there are probably some unkind things I could say about some developers that they don't want to talk to um, you know, the outside <laughs> world. They'd rather stay in their kind of you know, darkened rooms writing code all day. And I think that stereotype's probably gone by now. It's kind of mm. a, 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 a 90s stereotype maybe. Mm. But there's, there's definitely still a truism that you know, coders like to write code. That's yeah. that's the thing they're really interested in. And um, if somebody else can manage the the the, the trickier business bits and navigating the organization, mm-hmm. then that feels like a really good role for a, a, a good manager to help both the team and the business. Yeah, good points. Good points. Um, before I move on to my next question, I'll just wave a flag as well. For glad to hear your use of the OU. I uh, are you completed mm. an MSc, my MSc in computings with the Open University. Mm. And I use some of their um, astronomy material during my my bachelor's degree as well. And I've always oh. found the Open University material to be great. So uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's so self-contained and yeah. you can learn so much with it. I, I, I've tried Coursera's and, uh, you know, Udemy's. And I tend to get a little bit bored watching the videos, mm, if I'm honest. Mm, but with mm. the OU, it's all there in a book. And it's it's so so easy to absorb. So if you're a kind of budding data scientist and you don't know where to go, then I'd probably recommend doing some stats courses with the OU before doing a, um, a Coursera. Brilliant. Great, great basis. Uh, I, I completely agree, Pete. The other thing I remember we, we chatted about before, and it was a topic for a while on the blog as well, so it was probably front of mind for me, is this whole de- idea of data literacy uh, and improving mm. the, the the data or the data science literacy within an organization? Now, I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about, I, I remember you mentioning this idea of bring your own data days, which sounded a very mm. public way of doing um, the risk of data science literacy that could go badly wrong. What, what, were, <laughs> what, what were bring your own da- data days? Can you explain it first? Yeah, of course. So the the idea uh, behind Bring Your Own Data Days was if you're a team in the business somewhere and you had some kind of problem that you're wrestling with, some something you thought you could you could do with some help from a, a data specialist, you could bring your laptop and a data set with you uh, to a meeting room and we'd have a few data scientists on hand for the whole day to basically help you out, help build mm. out the thing that you needed that help with, or, or, or at least point you in the right direction for sure. how to make this work. So more often than not, this would tend to be either, you know, something in Excel or maybe something in SAS um, mm. that, that would be, you know, causing a, a, bit, a bit of a problem or, or maybe some SQL. Mm. Um, the, the idea behind it was, uh, it, it was it wasn't so much just to solve these kind of minor minor aches and pains. I mean that that was obviously useful and it was helping out um, the the analysts that came to us. It was it was a bit wider than that. And, and you know you talk about data literacy. It was actually about thinking about how how can we 
be quite impactful in raising the entire data literacy of the organization mm. and bring your data days were one strand of of a kind of wider approach so we also okay. had show and tells where mm -hmm. we'd do a kind of monthly show and tell and illustrate the latest data science projects that we'd run uh, we, I think we may talk about this later, but the, the way that we set up the data science team, this sort of hub and spoke model was aimed at, um, you know, helping to bring data science out to the wider business, not keeping oh, an right. ivory tower. Yeah. So the, the, all, all these, all these things were really linked up and they, they were aimed at, can we, can we turn our business, our very mm. traditional hundred year old <laughs> ex-public sector business yeah. into something that is forward thinking, very data literate, uses data to make decisions everywhere and, you know, by default. Um, and, and, and do that quite quickly, cheaply, you know, without anybody really noticing, mm. uh, which is, which is quite a big ask. And I think we made, yeah. I think we definitely made some headway, but the, the building in public stuff with the bring your own data days uh, and the show and tells were the two most successful things I think we did as a as a team and we also did our workshops as well actually we taught our you know actual training days right, um, right. which which kind of had a bit of crossover with the bring your own data days because you know people would straight away afterwards say can i can you help me with this problem then and then we'd say okay yeah come to the bring your own data day we're going to run in a, in a few weeks time mm -hmm. that makes good sense so thank you for clarifying that and i recognize as, as we found on the poll on the blog actually that there's a number of different components that make up for most data leaders, their, their data literacy program, it isn't like what just one part. Mm. Of the different things you tried then, the um, bring your own data days with us, public problem solving, the show and tells, um, the other kind of educational material and, and the workshops that you were doing, which one worked best for you? If you had to do it again, or you were advising a data leader still in mm. corporate life, what bits do you think were the best bits of your data literacy program? And you'd encourage others to do the same. The show and tell was definitely the biggest bang for your buck because right. it didn't take much preparation. You know, we mm. already have the material basically. Mm. Uh, you just need to find a meeting, a big enough meeting room or the canteen we use sometimes or big open spaces. Yeah. Uh, and start getting invites out and start showing what you're doing. Mm. Um, you know, the, the bringing your data days, although they were great, they needed some preparation on our time, on our part, and they take a bit of time to run. The R workshops that we ran were great and probably had, you know, a, a real impact on the people that attended them. But mm. the attendees, you know, you can only kind of fit 10 to 15 people per shop, mm. and it takes time mm. for you to build good training material. Mm. Um, so you, you kind of need to approach that with caution and know what you're getting into. But running a monthly show and tell, we had the, the CTO attend, uh, you know, on, on numerous occasions, very senior people mm. uh, from across the business would find out about it. And it acted as both kind of marketing, internal marketing for the data science team, mm. uh, but also did help to increase, I think, the, the wider literacy and the wider um, kind of awareness across the organization mm -hmm. because you know you're doing this stuff completely in public you know we we got to the point where we were printing posters leaving them in the canteen leaving them in the 
in the in the news that you know come to, come to our data science yes, uh, yes, show and tell yeah, every, yeah. you know keep at the same time every month um and, and have a rolling cast we also one thing that really helps to bring different organizational functions together is mm. we invited other functions to speak at our show and tells as well right. so you know risk would come and talk about some data science project that they'd done or right. insurance might come and talk about something that they'd done Mm-hmm. And it was great, and it really helped to foster a, a, a good, good culture. So, absolutely, hundred percent. Any organisation I I ever land in again that needs kind of data science, I would I would run a show and tell. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. Good, good advice, and I completely agree with you on the effectiveness of the share the glory, as I sometimes call it. That kind mm-hmm. of joint presenting is a is is it just works really well with with people. You, you mentioned the hub and spoke model, and I do I do in indeed want to get on to, to talking about that. I guess my only experience is having led both very centralized teams and very, very federated teams, both more formal hub and spoke and kind of looser relationships, almost disparate. Mm. And I've seen pros and cons for different ones at different times. Uh, it depends on the context of the organization. Certainly, I, I sense you were very pleased with the hub and spoke model. What One risk I've seen in that is the local data scientist or local team embedded within a business unit so out at the the spoke can sometimes go local as I, as I describe mm, it you know almost yeah. the, the closer relationships are with the business team they serve who might be under short-term sales target pressures etc they can begin to compromise best practice or what's mm. going to work in the long term or for the wider organization just to meet the local need I wonder did you see that risk and how did you mitigate that so that you maintain this good embedding in the business, but still a level of control and best practice and future scoping in, in what's delivered as well. Yeah, that that's that was definitely something in my mind. I, mm. I guess there are two aspects to it. The, the, the first is that, you know, a, a data scientist kind of going local and embedding themselves so deeply into the team that they basically become part of that team or even get poached from us. Mm. Um, that was not a worry for me. That was a success. I was I was kind of happy if that happened. You know, if we lose people to the business, that's great because then I've raised the level of that part of the business, mm. and that's that's happened kind of successfully uh, across a few parts. So HR, we had massive success um, landing data scientists with HR to the point where they've recruited some of those data scientists that they now run past the team. So that that aspect was okay for me. I never had any any worry about losing people. And that felt like a good thing. But then your your second point is is really interesting around are we then are we then potentially losing best practice? Do people take shortcuts? Um, and that that wasn't, I guess we probably weren't far enough along for that to be a worry because we were still uh, we were still sort of implementing the the hub and spoke model, you know, in in the last couple of years, and and it it happened, you know, we we'd landed it across maybe seven or eight different businesses, but only for the last year or two, you know, it wasn't really it wasn't four or five years where mm. uh, a, a real culture might have set in. Yeah. Um, my my feeling though is that uh, through the 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 kind of events that I just talked about through the the show and tells and the uh, the bring your own data days and the R workshops and all those other collaborative social events, mm-hmm. they're probably how we would maybe keep in touch and understand what's going on. So, you know, inviting the HR team, for instance, 
to come well, back and talk to us in six months about something that they delivered. Uh, we we tended with the show and tell. We it, it was a sort of quite a technical show and tell. So we'd actually right. show code. You know, we we did a straight exactly what okay. had been done and it would get to the, to the level of depth where you know we talk about failures we talk about issues mm. uh we we talk about the the kind of um some of the the challenges with doing this stuff you know it was very open and it was very collegiate mm. Mm. those those sorts of events i think are probably how we would have may, maybe formalized that a little bit more with our yeah. Uh, local teams to say okay could you come back in two months every two months or every three months and talk about what you're doing so we can kind of understand and yeah. and maybe keep in keep in track that way I, I wouldn't have been a big fan of uh keeping formal control in that in that circumstance because I think there's there's too much for probably too little gain um but having this kind of informal network of of alumni I guess data science alumni that have gone out mm. pro- probably would have been maybe a, a good middle ground of how to balance it Okay, interesting, interesting. I don't necessarily fully agree in the context I've seen, but I, I, I can hear your argument, Pete. And it, interesting, it struck me how much your ethos of the importance of honesty and, and transparent working is coming through again as, as part of the solution. Yeah, I, I think that's that's been a truism throughout my career, actually, the, you know, being being transparent, making sure everything's available. Mm. I mean, th- maybe there's there's less worry from my side because, you know, I'm thinking that everyone's Git repo is open. You know, you can kind of, kind of go in and look at the code yeah. Uh, yeah. whenever we need to. So yeah. it's sort of, and, and the, the caliber of people we recruited tend to be much stricter than I was actually about the, the quality of the code that we were writing. So, right. you know, they would, right. they would maybe tell me off for taking shortcuts when I, when <laughs> I was, uh, you know, keen at a, we just need to do this, you know. No, we're not going to yes. just do this. We're going to do yes. this right. So may, maybe some of that is coming through as well. But yeah, transparency absolutely is is um, yeah absolutely critical for us. Lots of the team came from academia, and they were very used to oh, um, right. to, to doing this. You know, almost all the yeah. team actually had academic backgrounds with yes. PhDs. So it was sort of the expected thing to talk about your work and be public with your work and publish yeah. everything that you did. Nice. That, that, that makes complete sense. Uh, although I rarely hear it in corporate life, so it's, it's good to hear that. And I can see how your business focus and experience would, would, would complement that approach. Pete, I, I try and, on, as you've probably heard on, on every episode of this podcast, to try and protect some time to speak to that portion of our audience who are earlier in their careers. They may be starting out as an analyst or they're earlier in their career as a data scientist. Given what you've learned over your career and you still see in in developing uh, others and those in your team, I wonder what your advice now would be for those who are starting out. What skills and knowledge would you recommend they focus on developing? So if we're talking about, say, a budding data scientist or data analyst or data engineer, Mm. then I I guess that the technical stuff is is pretty much there. It's kind of well understood. I think I think you could probably never learn enough SQL. So being really hands-on with SQL is going to be useful. You know, we've been talking about moving away from SQL for the last 20 or 30 years. It's not <laughs> going to go away. It's still Indeed. going to be embedded Indeed. in the next 20 or 30 years. So yeah. make sure you really understand your SQL. And then if you're moving into data science, then having a great maths background mm. Uh, mm. can't be undersold, particularly statistics and linear algebra. But I assume if you're moving into uh, data science, you probably know that. So mm. rather than focusing on the technical bits, um, I think there are probably some key skills that are really valuable if you're trying to do this stuff in an organization. They're probably different 
where if you're in a big organization versus if you're in a small organization. So in a big organization, lots of the time, I think it's very easy to think, you know, how what, am I making a difference? Am I just a tiny cog in this machine? Yeah. Um, and that's that's perfectly natural. I think that's something that everybody feels, even if you're you know, relatively senior in the organization, because it's just mm. so big. Mm. So understanding um, what what the organization is about, what your part of the organization does is really critical. And, and you know, the domain knowledge that yeah. you need to pick up to be effective in that part of the organization what does your boss have to worry about? What does your mm. boss's boss have to mm. worry about? Mm. Um, mm. This is all fairly fairly basic, but it took me a good ten years to really get to, <laughs> to understand that this was this yeah. is a critical part of your career. You know, yeah. That, yeah. that can make sense. Yeah, um, no, and in, go on, Pete. Sorry, boss. Um, yeah, and in, in a in a um, in a in a big organization. Um, you know, you it's it's very easy to get focused on spending a lot of time, a lot of energy on working on something that just is not impactful. Um, you know, w- w- like b- building these kind of reports and nobody will read, or uh, optimizing this piece of SQL to the nth degree to, to yeah. get it perfect. And that you know that that might be good for your learning, but it's probably not important to the organization. Probably yeah. won't be useful for your career. So yeah. actually finding out about the things that are important. What mm. what are the concerns mm. of the organization, and how can you help address those using the skills that you've got? And not being afraid to kind of speak up and say that you've got great ideas, and you can you can maybe uh, you know think about doing things differently in your in your yeah. little area. People employ data scientists to tell them things they don't know about the organization. Yeah. You know, they, they don't employ data scientists to tell them what to do, uh, or if they are, they're, they're sort of doing you wrong. A data scientist should be discovering and exploring and understanding yeah. more about the organization than the people already work there. So that's my that's my big tip for the, you know, if you're working in corporate life. Hmm. And my big tip for working in a small organization, which I've, I've learned over the last year, is be prepared to do pretty much anything uh, and your job description is very much just a guide and not a formal yeah. Uh, yeah. formal kind of you know listing of your of your role so yeah everybody does everything and there's um you you need to be aware that you will be valuable to a small company massively more than you will be to a big company because you you'll be you know directly impactful on everything yeah uh, but being flexible adaptable agile you know all these things are, are just completely key components of, of yeah. being effective in a small organization yeah completely agree thank you Pete. U- useful advice for, for for large and small contexts on the on the second one i'm reminded of a blog post about fuzzy roles when analytics teams are small. And that's my experience as well when, when growing teams from scratch, even actually in a large organization, when it's a small team, that mm. flexibility to do almost anything is, is, is a great help. Sadly, time is against us. So we have amazingly come to our, uh, our last question, although it seems to have rushed by. And I, I'm intrigued to know what you're gonna to say to this. So <laughs> I've asked a lot of leaders, um, to share with me something they've changed their mind on in the last few years. And, and I do it because I'm very keen to get across to the listeners the fact that even successful leaders like yourself are still very much work in progress and, and changing and growing and developing. So briefly, Pete, what, what have you changed your mind on in the last few years? I'm going to give you a very quick trivial answer and then a proper answer. So <laughs> okay. every, every six months, I change my mind on blockchain. 
and uh, <laughs> I, I yo-yo from thinking that it's uh, you know it's it's great. It's, this is a brilliant idea. It's going to revolutionise mm. how mm. we can manage uh, you know different organisations coming together, distributed ledgers. That's great. Mm. To six months later, thinking this is literally just good for for Bitcoin and currency, and it, it can't do anything else. It's complete nonsense. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm currently in the the positive optimistic stage. Okay. I think smart contracts are, are great. DAOs yeah. are great, and there's definitely something interesting there. But mm. if you were to ask me again in February, probably, then I'd probably just say that, yeah, Bitcoin <laughs> is the only useful use case for it. So that's the, the kind of trivial answer. Okay. Um, the, the genuine answer, I think, is probably doing innovation in big organizations. So mm. while I was at Centric, I thought it was probably hard, but quite possible. Um, now I think that it's almost impossible unless... The conditions are really right. You know, the organization is set up for it. The organization top down believes in what they're doing. Um, this harks back to one of the very early answers I gave. You know, you, you can build something so quickly in a startup that you're at an incredible disadvantage in terms of speed and, mm. and growth in a mm. big organization. Unless you have things like legal as a service or marketing as a service, um, mm. you know, in a big organization then it becomes so, so difficult to, to, to catch up. And there are some organizations, I think, that probably do that quite well. And at Centrica, you know, we launched the Accelerator Hub because we knew we, we couldn't do this very well. We wanted yeah. to build something, this, this kind of small independent body that could, that could launch stuff quickly without all yeah. the, the strictures around it. Um, but yeah, lot, I think lots of organizations probably still still struggle with this a lot. And mm-hmm. um, it's really difficult to do it. And my, my advice now is probably if you really want to innovate, then you either need to know you're in one of those organizations that believe in it deep down or leave and join a, join a, a scaling startup. Marvellous. Thank, thank you, Pete. And, and a good encouragement to go the route that you've gone your very self as well. That's great. Thanks for that. And many thanks for your time today, Pete. It's been, as I expected, a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thanks very much, Paul. That was brilliant. Really good. Great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader, or one word, dot com. So you might want to check that out, too. Before then, thanks, everyone, for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps you can reflect on how honesty and transparency might empower your data leadership role even more. Bye for now.